Church, do you believe that? Ah, that is great news, great news in the gospel that we have, that we've been washed by the blood, we've been forgiven by Jesus Christ, and because of that, our yesterdays are gone. They are gone. We don't have to think about our yesterdays anymore. They're a thing of the past because he has given us a future. He's given us a future of hope, a future of peace, and a future in relationship with God. And we can stand on that truth, and we're so excited about that. This past Friday, we had Veterans Day, and I just would like to take some time now to just honor those who have served in the forces to protect our country here. And I'd like to do it by conflict. I am wondering, is there anybody here who was in the World War II conflict? I think Frank Schleip was our last one. Yeah, Frank Schleip was our last one. So he's no longer with us. He's experiencing that glory in heaven right now. We can be thankful for that. Uh, anybody who has served from uh, World War II through the Korean conflict, would you stand, please? World War II through the Korean conflict. Wow, I'm surprised. Our first service had a lot of them, as you can imagine. <laughs> All right, between the Korean conflict and Vietnam, if you'd stand up, go ahead and stand up. All right, thank you, man. Thank you. Stay, stay standing. If you have served between Vietnam and Desert Storm, Vietnam and Desert Storm. From, from the Desert Storm through the War on Terror to the present, if you are currently and presently serving, would you please stand? Oh, amen. Thank you, men and women, for serving this country. For, all right, some of you sat down. I guess you can all sit down. I was going to keep you standing for a little bit, but thank you for serving this country, for making yourself available, giving yourselves to protect the freedoms that the rest of us enjoy. Freedom of speech, that we can do this today openly. Freedom of religion, that any religion, any religion in the whole world can be in this country and can, can speak th what they believe without the fear of persecution. Freedom to assemble peaceably, and that's what we are doing now. Because of that freedom, we're able to do this and not fear the government, not fear others, because we are gathering in a peaceful way. And then the fear to, or the, the, the uh, freedom to protect ourselves. So thank you all for, for that. Would you please give those men and women one more, one more round of applause? We experience that freedom in a beautiful way, but a time is coming when America will no longer have those freedoms. And America will just be a small part of an entire world that will no longer have those freedoms. And that's going to happen because the Bible tells us that there's a future coming that we need to know about and that we're going to talk about today. And it's a little hard when, you know, we're Americans. We're the best country in the world. We, we shouldn't have to face any of that. We're going to stand strong. But the truth is that our world is changing. And there's biblical truth that we must know about in order to be ready for it. 
Before anything like that happens, though, the rapture is coming. The rapture, the rapture is a time when Jesus will come. We will meet him in the clouds. He will come and take all those who have died, who have followed him in their life. He, he will raise them up. Those who are alive will join with them, and they will go to be with Jesus and be in heaven for the next seven years or so after that because they will be with Jesus while the earth now faces what's called the Great Tribulation. Now, we already see this in work, okay? This is beginning to happen. And what I mean is that there is going to be, in the Tribulation, a one-world order. We already see some of this. We see this in the United Nations, in the World Health Organization, in the World Economic Forum, in the Club of Rome, many other organizations seeking a one-world order. In this world order, there will be unified economy, unified government, and even a unified religion. There will be a unified religion that is taking place. No doubt, the tolerance theme that we are seeing in our society is leading up to that unified religion, something that we will, we will face. Out of this one world order will come a world ruler. The Bible knows this ruler as the Antichrist. But when he comes, he will show up in peace. He will come proclaiming peace. He will be a man of peace and known for his work. He will use this, this uh, worldwide religion to his advantage to come into power. And um, he will be a, a ruler over the whole world. Under him are 10 kings. He will actually subdue three of those kings and then the seven kings that are remaining will give him their power so that he has total control over government, economy, and religion. He will make a seven-year treaty with Israel. This will be one of his, his uh, climactic works, is that he will solve the problem that Israel has faced for millennia because the Arab nations around Israel are seeking to destroy Israel. And he will come in and make a peace treaty with them and, and it, tell them that they are free from the threat of their neighbors and from the threat of anybody. They will at last have peace. They will buy into this treaty. They will, they will think he is like the Messiah to them because he has provided peace for them. Meanwhile, in the world, while this is going on, there have been tremendous famine, disease, wars, and disasters, both natural disasters and miraculous disasters. And through all of that, God is continuing to call people to himself. So even though the church has been taken out of the earth at this point, God has not stopped working. He is continuing to bring his gospel to people, to show them that though things are falling apart in the world and those things are, are horrible, he is the only hope. He is the only anchor of security for the world. And so he's using, using very special instruments to accomplish this. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the two special witnesses, uh, the gospel angels who are going out and proclaiming the gospel. And people throughout the, the world are coming to him even during that time. About three and a half years in, the Antichrist will break his treaty with Israel. He will go back on his promise to Israel and he will determine at that point that Israel can no longer practice its religion. 
So there'll be no Judaism at this point. Also, he will turn his back on the worldwide religion which he had used to come to power. Now he'll turn his back on that and he will condemn it. And no longer will anybody be allowed to worship in any way except to worship him. He will set himself up as God. And his assistant, the false prophet, will point everybody in his direction. And how they will do this is they will require that anybody in order to worship him must receive a mark. It's called the mark of the beast in the Bible. It's a mark of 666. It will go on the forehead or on your hand. And for that, the people who receive that mark, they will receive that because they are worshiping the beast. And they get all the privileges of the government at that time. And everybody will receive that mark. And no one can turn away from that once they've received that mark. There's no undoing the mark. There's no undoing the worship of the Antichrist, known as the beast. Those who have not received the mark, the Bible says, are those whose names have been written in the book of life. In other words, these are believers, people who said, we will only worship Jesus, we will not worship the Antichrist, and so they don't take the mark. And because they don't take the mark, they cannot participate in the economy of the day, which means that they will not be able to buy and sell. If they're eating, it's from what other people are giving them or from what they're finding. They're probably in hiding. Worship like what we're doing today will not be existing at that time. The Antichrist claims to be God and demands the worship of everyone. Now, let me just take you back to present time. When the gas prices go up, who gets blamed for it? Yeah, the, the president, right? Right? Isn't it President Biden's fault? When the gas prices go down, who will get the credit for it? President Biden will get the credit for it, probably, right? Because whenever stuff goes bad, it's usually the president, the leader, who gets, who gets the, the, uh, the blame, right? So if all this stuff is happening in the tribulation, and there's, there's war, disease, famine, disaster. I mean, even, even think, about, think about Florida, uh, you know, hit, being hit with the two hurricanes. We know that Governor DeSantis is not gonna come out smelling like roses probably because there's tragedy. He didn't bring the tragedy, but he can't possibly do everything that needs to be done and make everybody happy. So he will get blamed. So what we have here in the, in the uh, uh, time of the tribulation, with all this stuff going, going wrong, no doubt the Antichrist is going to take some of the heat for that. And there will actually be an uprising against him. In fact, there'll be some armies from the east that will come and will, will devastate Babylon, his capital city. Fallen is Babylon is the way the Bible says it. Listen to this, to this verse from Revelation, these verses. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour, your doom has come. So Babylon is gone. And with it, the Antichrist knows that his time is running out. He is losing control, losing power. Everything has collapsed in the, the, or is collapsing in the government, in the economy, and in the religion. So 
We also have this very interesting verse from the prophet Daniel. It says, but rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, Antichrist, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. So for some reason, we don't know why, the Antichrist is not in the city when the army comes. Perhaps he has already been gathering armies for another purpose. But when he hears word that his city has fallen, he is enraged and he, he is able to manage the unification of all of the armies of the world who will gather together in a special place and he will turn them onto Jerusalem, onto the Jews, God's people, and ultimately to fight against God himself. And this is known as Armageddon. You've all heard of Armageddon probably, and, and there, there's a lot, of, a lot of talk about it, but I'd like to just, just give some, some classroom facts about it, if I may. So I have a little map up here. So this is Israel right here, and um, right next to it is Jordan. Uh, right here is Mount Hermon in this area. You can see a little mountain range there, and just north of that is this great valley, a valley that is 20 miles by 14 miles of flat land. That is called the Valley of Jezreel or the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's been a famous battleground for many years. It's been famous battleground in the Bible, famous battleground outside of the Bible. Uh, there have been a number of wars there. I just want to show you where Jerusalem is, is right here. And then below that, we're gonna talk about this in a minute, it's not on the map, but right in about this area here is a place called Basra, which is in current day Jordan. Basra right here. So we have the Valley of Jezreel, Jerusalem, and Basra right in that area. Now, where we get the name Armageddon from is, it's from the word Har Megiddo, which literally means hill or tell of Megiddo. So Megiddo was this little, little town right here that once existed. And in, in the Middle East, as, as uh, nations or as, as towns build upon the ruins of other towns, it becomes a hill, and that's what this is. So this is the, the hill of Megiddo, and you can see it's overseeing this great valley, the Valley of Jezreel. And here's one more look at the valley. You can see how, how big it is. It's huge. Big flat land um, used many times. It's, it's well known that Napoleon said this valley is the best battleground in all the world. Yep, yep. So the Antichrist has gathered the armies of all the nations together in the valley of Jezreel. He gets word that Babylon has fallen. He's enraged and so he turns his anger onto the Jews and the Jewish, the Jewish community that is in Jerusalem. There's also a large Jewish community that has already fled down to Basra. Okay, so the Antichrist is going to come down to Jerusalem and it is a devastating time. Jerusalem actually falls to the Antichrist. I want you to hear, hear some of these verses that talk about this. Now this is God speaking. He says, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. This is a horrible time. 
The Antichrist and Satan, with Satan's power, um, thinks he is solving the world problem, the Jewish problem, that has been a problem for Gentiles all through. And we've seen his, historically people throughout history who have, who have wanted to, to rid the world of the Jews. They call it the Jewish problem. Haman tried to do that uh, in, in a way. Herod tried to do that. Certainly Hitler tried to do that. Let's destroy the world, destroy all the Jews, get rid of the Jews, be done with them. But here we see it happening again. Antichrist thinks he is really going to accomplish this, but it's God. It's God who brought all the nations there to bring judgment upon the Jews. From the beginning, the Jews have rejected their God. He chose them to be a people set apart for himself to do his work to bring his truth to the world. Over and over and over, God fought for them, God provided for them, he gave them all that they need, needed, and over and over and over, he re they rejected him. And so he sent prophets to them to speak his word to them, and they killed the prophets. Eventually, he sent his very own son, Jesus Christ, to come and be their Messiah, and they rejected him as well and killed him. Jesus came and said, if you just turn your hearts to me, God will bring blessing upon this nation. But nationally, they did not do it. They rejected Christ, and destruction came in AD 70, and from that time on until 1948, the Jews were scattered throughout the world. They're back in the land now, back in Israel, but they're back in unrepentance. The thing is that there are Jews through the world, and there are Jews even in this congregation who have turned their hearts to the Messiah and have given themselves to the Messiah, and they are part of the elect, part of the, the, the chosen Jews who have, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. But up until this point now in history or in the future, the Jews nationally have continued to reject Christ. And so as Jerusalem falls to the Antichrist, he turns and goes down to attack Basra as well. And there are, at this point, maybe even more Jews in Basra because they've been hiding out uh, for that point. And the Antichrist uh, goes and attacks the Jews in Basra. And finally, what happens? The Jews have nowhere else to turn. Their allies are gone. Their resources are gone. Their military prowess that they have had for centuries and for millennia is gone. They have nothing. They turn to God, finally. As a nation, they will turn to God and call on him in desperation, and he will come to them. There's this great verse in Hosea. I love this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. You see, Jesus came for them, but because they rejected him, he said, I will go back. I'll go back to my place and I will wait because I'm patient. I will wait until they acknowledge their guilt and seek me, and that's what Jesus does, and he will, they will call out to him, and he will come to their rescue. 
Hosea goes on to say, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him and not die. You see, two-thirds of the Jews actually will die. They will perish in this. But the one-third that remains will turn their hearts to the Lord. Here it is in Zechariah. The two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. And this sets the stage for the return of Christ. When Israel will finally cry out as a nation, Lord, we have nothing left. Come and save us. He will turn his heart to them again. He will hear their cry, hear their prayer, and he will return People, the return of Christ is the climactic moment in the Bible. It is what the entire Bible is pointing to. Do you know that, that there are 1,800 references to the second coming of Christ in the Old Testament? That beats out references to the first coming of Christ by eight to one. The New Testament itself has over 300 references to the return of Christ. It is the high point of all of Scripture. All of Scripture is pointing to the point when Jesus will come back and set his kingdom up on earth. And now we're going to read that together. It is such an important passage. I'm going to ask for you to stand as we read this. And as I read this, I'm going to ask that you say nothing that we just remain in silence as we hear these two passages read. I'm reading from Matthew 24 and then Revelation 19. Listen to the word of the Lord. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a, a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a large, loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, 
so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sat on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. That is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus Christ will come back. Jesus Christ will come back, and he will come back with two armies, an army of angels and an army of the church, which he had taken up to be with him prior to that. But those armies will not fight. Jesus is the only one who will do battle. And he will do battle simply by the word of his mouth. Just as with the word of his mouth, he spoke creation into existence and he spoke life into creation, he will speak death and destruction to the rebellious world that has gone against him. And Revelation chapter 19 says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. You get that? True and just. God is just in doing that. He is just in the destruction that will come at his coming. And we'll see why he's just. First, because he will rid the sin of earth. From the time of Adam and Eve, they, they rebelled against God. They said, you know, we're not going to do it God's way. We're going to do it my way. We want to do it our way. That's the way. And from that time on, that rebellion, a curse has come over not only the earth, but all of creation, all of the universe has been subject to this curse of death and decay. Jesus Christ is coming to rid the earth of that curse. When he comes back, there will be no more sin on the earth. The thing is, it speaks of God's patience that he is waiting. See, he won't come back a minute early. He won't come back until the last person who is supposed to be in his kingdom will be there. Then, when he comes back, all of this will take place. The second thing is that Christ will finally establish his throne on the earth. You see, he is the rightful ruler of this world. 
not Satan, not any other king. We have seen through the, through the millennia, we have seen one corrupt government, one corrupt king after another. Over and over and over, corruption after corruption, war, war, fighting, war, constantly. Jesus will come in righteousness. He will reign in peace. He will reign with justice. And he will rule over the world, and the world will finally experience rest. It's been yearning for that time. The Bible says that all creation has been groaning until the time of its redemption. This is it, right here, when Christ will establish his throne. And finally, Christ will come, do, come to undo Satan's power and to remove his influence over mankind. The first thing Christ will do will be to take the Antichrist and the false prophet and throw them alive into the lake of fire. Now, the lake of fire is a place of eternal torment. It is not annihilation. It is not the end of them. It is perpetual and continual suffering that will never end for the Antichrist and for, for the false prophet because they have been given over to Satan. And Jesus will also bind Satan for a thousand years, after which he'll release him for one final purpose. And we're going to talk about that in the next prophecy sermon in a couple of weeks. We're going to talk about this millennial kingdom, this thousand-year reign. At the end of that, Satan will be released, and he and all who have ever followed Satan, all unbelievers of the world, will be thrown into the lake of fire with the Antichrist and the false prophet. And they too will suffer for all eternity. So this is a glorious time of celebration for those who are in God's kingdom. Our king will be here. He will be here on this earth in the flesh. What's been a spiritual kingdom will become the kingdom of God on earth, a visible, physical kingdom. There'll be more evil, there will be peace and safety for all who are in that kingdom. But for the rest of the world, this is a fearsome time. The amount of death is incomprehensible. The destruction that will take place at that time is more than the earth has ever seen before. And the gravity of what we're talking about should rip our hearts apart when we think about it. No unbeliever will survive his coming. Not one. No unbeliever will survive his coming. When he returns and establishes his kingdom on earth, it will be populated with those who survived the tribulation, the believers, and with those who have come back with him there will be no unbeliever there. And God is right in doing this. We have seen this in past weeks, that the Bible says that the Lord is patient, unwilling that anyone should perish. You get that? God doesn't want that end for any of you. He wants you to turn to him, to repent. Listen to what he says in, in Ezekiel. He says, I do not take pleasure in the death of anyone. Repent and live. Do you hear God's heart in that? See, he doesn't want that to happen. It must happen because of the rebellion that will continue to exist. But he doesn't want you to be a part of it. 
If you believe here today, it's because God has pursued you. He was relentless in pursuing you, and because by faith you have received his grace, you have received new life and new light and new hope and new peace, and you are in a reconciled relationship with Jesus Christ and with God. If you're not a believer, in other words, if you have not said, Lord, my sin is a problem and I need your saving grace and I have received you by faith, I know and I understand that your death on the cross paid the penalty for my personal sin, not just for the sins of the world, my sin, the sins of John Rossetti, Jesus did that. If you have not done that, then you are biblically called an unbeliever and Jesus is pursuing you, right? He doesn't want you to go to that end. He is pursuing you just like he pursued us. And he is calling to you today. He says, I want you to be on my side. I love, I love that revelation and and these prophecies are in the Bible because it's no surprise to us. You see, there are two stories going on. There's the stories of believers who will be with God forever. And there's the stories of unbelievers who will be thrown into the lake of fire and suffer forever, forever. And God gives us the end of both stories because he doesn't want anybody to go there. He wants you to hear the story and to say, hmm, I've got a choice. I want to pick, I want to pick this side, right? God doesn't want you to be there. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, either we will say to God, your will be done, or he will say to us, your will be done. You see, our will without God, whether we realize it or not, is to say, I'm going on the losing side, on the side of, of hell. We make a choice in this, don't we? We choose one way or the other. Now, church... For us, this is a call to engage. Right now, today, it is a call to us for us to engage. We should be compelled to get into this battle. Satan knows his time is short, and he is working overtime to corrupt the world. He is infiltrating the world with his de- deceitful agenda. He is infecting our government. He is infecting our schools. He's infecting our families, morality, and every aspect of human society. He is at hard work trying to build his kingdom and steal everybody he can. But church, you understand God is doing the same thing? But you know how God chose to do it? Through you and me. I would never have chosen that. (laughs) I know me too well to depend on me for that. But he In his wisdom, he said, I'm saving people and they are to build my kingdom. We're the kingdom builders. You and I are the kingdom builders. Do you understand that? This is God's method. Church, we are the ones who are on the offense, right? When when the Bible says that uh, that, um, he... Uh, Jesus has this church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You realize that the gates of hell are a defensive move, right? We are the offense. The gospel is the offense. We're on the offense. You see, we don't have to sit in church and protect the gospel. We need to release it and let it do its job. We are given the hope of the world. And so we are the ones who are the, the offensive move in this. But sadly, I think that the church overall, not just this church, the church overall, 
has been affected by our environment. We waver in our stand of the gospel. We measure the Bible against our culture and we say, gee, maybe it really is irrelevant. We think that maybe humankind really does know better than God. We get embarrassed that the Bible is true and authoritative. Maybe we're numb to the glory of our outcome and the horror of the outcome of the world. Now believers, I'm preaching to myself. Listen, it's one thing to stand up here in a room full of a lot of believers and preach this stuff. Put me out on the streets and I'm like, what do I say? What do I say? Lord, help me. I don't know what to do, right? This is for all of us. It's for every one of us. Some of us are asleep. Some of us are hiding. J. Vernon McGee says, oh, my friend, the battle between light and darkness has been and is raging, but it seems that Christians are asleep. There is a war, there is a conflict, and many of us run for cover. You see, if we really took seriously the desperate situation that the world is in and that the unbelievers in our lives are in, I don't think we'd be able to sit still. I don't think we'd be able to, to, to ignore that. We would be pouring ourselves into the lives of unbelievers. We'd be serving those in need knowing that we are the only hope. There's no other hope other than Jesus Christ. We have that hope. We're the only ones who can give that. We would be giving more, more time, more money, more energy, more resources to the kingdom of God knowing that the time is short. Now I know I'm talking to a church that just did this, right? You know, we're gonna have the number for this. We're gonna advertise the number for this next year, next week rather. We'll let you know, you know? And I'm talking to a church that gives so generously. I'm talking to a church that when we have an event like our, our fall festival, over a hundred of you show up to help. I'm talking to a church that when there's a need for a, a, a family need that rallies around that family. Church, I commend you often for those things. But I, but I sense the Spirit saying that there are those here who are sitting on their hands, who are not doing that, who are not engaging, and you're missing out. You're missing out on, on the greatest work you will ever do. Don't let the stuff of this life get in the way of the reality that is to come, the reality of God's kingdom. See, we will look back at this as if it was a faded dream one day because the reality of being with Christ will be so strong. So are you willing to step up and do the work of the kingdom? There's so much at stake. We need everybody to do their part. So I, I want to bring this to a close now. First, I believe that there are some here today uh, who have not trusted God for eternal life. I know in, in a room this size, there are those here who have not put their faith and hope in the cross of Jesus Christ, who died for your sins to give you eternal life. I want you to hear God's words again. This is to you personally. He says, I do not take pleasure in the death of anyone. Repent and live that's his message for you. So today you're faced with a choice, a choice of eternal life or eternal death. 
sharing in the kingdom of God or sharing in the kingdom of Satan, the Antichrist and the false prophet. God wants you to come into his kingdom. He doesn't want that other end for you. He wants all goodness for you and that's what he promises to give to those who receive him by faith. So today, are you willing to say, Lord, your will be done in my life, not mine? And if you are willing to say that, we're going to have some counselors here at the end, our elders and wives and, and some other, other our pastors will be up front. When we dismiss, I'd like you to come up front and just talk to one of them and find out how to get started in the path to eternal life with God. Followers of Christ, there's a, a, a message for you in this too. And I, I want to start this just by reading from the Apostle Paul. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual for forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. If God has been pressing on you, believer, to engage, to get in the battle, get in the fight, to serve, then do it. Take your fingers out of your ears. Listen to what the Lord is saying. You will never regret giving any more time or money or resources or whatever to God who has given you everything, right? God has given you his one and only son to die for you. It is nothing for us to give. Every time I give beyond what I think I should, God blesses that. He does. And I'm not just talking about putting money in the offering box. I'm talking about our lives, giving our lives. You will never regret it. Again, believer, there will be counselors down here at the end of the service, and when we dismiss, I would love for you to come down and just pray. Just, just start, start today with prayer. That, that's your, your next step is to pray these things before God and to make that commitment to him and do it. So, church, let's stand together. I want to speak these words of Jesus over you as we go. Jesus says this to us. He says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And he closes it by saying, I am coming quickly. Amen. Amen. Be dismissed. Thank you.